From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On this Thanksgiving Day, we reflect on stories about family, about hope, change, and overcoming. People who make a difference. Like Frank and Carolyn Anello, who help refugees establish lives in Colorado through empowerment. It's super exciting for Carolyn and I to be able to have created something to give people opportunity to relive their dreams and to be able to serve those in our community. Then the story of a mother who lifts up children through literature, even after the loss of her son and an accident that left her critically injured. Plus, a unique bond between a father and daughter who took on El Capitan. It was a pretty special time to spend together. Yeah, I think it brought us really close together. Yeah. And honoring community heroes and heritage with the voice of Montbello. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. On this Thanksgiving, we're sharing stories of thanks, stories of empowerment and of home, about how people can change lives and create community. Take, for instance, a young woman named Yasi. She was born and raised in a refugee camp in Kenya and now works at a dental clinic in Denver for refugees. I never cared about the, my teeth, how they looked, anything, and... All I had to think about is my safety and where I'm going to be running and if anything to happen. So if I had pain and I just use a rub, tied it on my teeth and just pull it out. If a tooth hurt, she pulled it out with a rope. Yasi's now in college at Metro State. It's fair to say moving to Colorado changed her life. But it turns out working with refugees changes lives too. That's what a Denver couple found. Frank and Carolyn Anello founded Project Worthmore to help refugees. It includes that dental clinic and a farm where refugees learn to grow and sell produce. They spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. Carolyn, I want to start with a revealing detail. What kind of shape are refugees' teeth in? Well, it varies, but a lot of times what we see uh, will be abscesses, extensive decay. Lots of times people come in, they haven't had any preventative care, any treatment in the past, coming in with a lot of fear. So we get the privilege of um, helping walking people through that fear, um, getting the treatment they need, and getting to see the end result. And it's really gratifying. I hear from my own dentist all the time how much my dental health is linked to my general physical health. And so teeth become a sign, really, of the lives that they've led. Absolutely. You can see, you know, the, the trauma of war and just the lack of basic needs. Um, it's it's really eye-opening, but it's absolutely a pleasure to gain trust and to be able to help people through that process. The trust aspect of this is really interesting. How do they feel about coming to the dentist, about being in that vulnerable position? It is a vulnerable pr- position for anyone to be in. You know, it depends on the person. We like to start off easy, gaining trust with uh, children. It's absolutely an honor to get to see patients that we saw maybe five years ago uh, coming back in. And now they aren't in the condition that they were when we first saw them. Now they're, you know, fixed up and they just need the preventative care. And so that's great. Yasi, as we said, is from Kenya. She speaks several languages, including Swahili, Somali, and a bit of Hindi. Frank, tell us how she's like or unlike the people you work with, uh, where they're from, what languages they speak. Yeah, she represents uh, one of the many cultures that we work with. What I love about what Project Worthmore does is we, uh, we employ from the community. And I feel like that's why at the dental clinic there is such um, a welcoming environment 
um, for people with the lived experience. As they walk in, they see a familiar face with someone who has gone through the same things that they have gone through um, and makes, like for Carolyn said, that welcoming environment um, and and giving them an, an opportunity to feel at home. What countries are represented in the clinic, on the farm? Yeah, so on the farm, we have five farmers, two from Somalia and uh, three from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and in the dental clinic, we have staff from Afghanistan, Djibouti, Sudan, India, um, Burma. And I imagine the, the client base is even bigger than that. Yes, yeah, so Project Worthmore started off serving um, mainly refugees from Burma just about 10 years ago, and now we have about 26 different countries that we serve. Language must be an interesting challenge. Yes, language is an interesting challenge, um, but on our staff, we do have around 20-some languages spoken. I know that teaching English is a big part of Project Worthmore. I wonder how much language is a key to unlocking American culture. Talk to me about that journey a bit. First of all, when when you can communicate with somebody, you can hear their story. We can share um, ideas and share just experiences. And when you can't communicate, it's much harder. There you can. There's body language and all of that. But to actually hear where someone is coming from is absolutely important to understanding American culture and the culture where they came from. Frank, what stories stand out? Yeah. So for me, I would say. The very first family that we worked with um, over 10 years ago who came here uh, with a fourth grade education, came here with uh, no English skills whatsoever. Um, Now, 10 years later, they are citizens. They are homeowners. They're business owners. So those, that's just one of many, many stories that stand out of people that have come here with a drive to be successful and integrate into our communities. Were these Burmese refugees? They were. They were. I want to talk about your own journeys. Ten years ago, Carolyn, you were a dental hygienist in private practice. Frank, you worked at a restaurant. uh, And your church paired you with a refugee family from Burma. What do you remember about that experience, Carolyn? It was super exciting, uh, humbling. At the time, we didn't know anything about Burma. Uh, We met this family. They had just arrived from the airport. Uh, We helped set up their apartment. We made a meal for them that we thought was going to be really good. And later on, we found out they didn't like it at all. (laughs) (laughs) What had you you made them? Well, it was super bland, a rice dish that just, it wasn't very good. Had you tried to cook Burmese cuisine for them? Is that what this was about? We attempted, we assumed that they might want brown rice, but brown rice was absolutely off the table. It needed to be white (laughs) rice. It needed to be white rice. This is part of the learning experience. But the, the friendship progressed from there, I gather. It did. Um, I remember the, you know, the first time meeting them, uh, we hung out on their uh, living room floor trying to communicate, um, mostly with just hand signals and body language. And now uh, I just had a conversation with the mom on the phone and just realizing that, you know, how far they've come, how far we've come. It's really a beautiful thing to be Mm -hmm. a part of. You went from helping one family through your church to posting flyers looking for volunteers to Project Worthmore, uh, which has served thousands of people. And if you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're joined by husband and wife Frank and Carolyn Anello, the founders of Project Worthmore in Metro Denver, which works with refugees. Uh, what, what spoke to you about this work? How do you explain your connection to it, Frank? For me, 
um, it was instilled in me from my mom. And my mom was someone who always um, dedicated herself to working um, and serving those who were underserved. And growing, being part of the restaurant industry and then being introduced to this family, it gave me an opportunity to, to relive what my mom had instilled in me and the ability to serve others. Uh, Carolyn and I just assumed that we would be traveling overseas um, together as a family to serve and help others in need. But what we realized is that there's really no need to cross the ocean when you can just cross the street to serve those that have come here in search of a new life. And it has completely enriched um, our life together as a family um, when we've been able to have such a huge impact by just responding to what we we call a calling from, from God um, for us to provide our services. What poetry you've just spoken. You don't have to cross an ocean when you can cross a street to help people. But you both left careers, different careers, to do this. Was that nerve-wracking, Carolyn? It was. Uh, when we started the clinic five years ago, um, we started one day a week, then two days a week, three days a week. Then I quit my uh, steady job and, and started doing it full time. And You inherited some hand-me-down dental equipment. Absolutely. the Project Worthmore Clinic for Refugees. Uh, as we said, you hire refugees at the clinic. Yasi works there. Also, a young man named Sahal, he's from Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, uh, where he was a dentist. He works in your clinic while taking classes to get certified to practice here. I'm contributing something on the community since I can help them with translating and working as a dental assistant also. It makes me feel that I'm still in my field. I can do something good for the community as well as I can do something for my own career. What has always stuck with me about refugee stories, Frank, is that uh, they so often have been successful in their native countries. They come to the United States, and in some ways they have to start from square one. Do you find that to be true of the folks at Project Worthmore? Absolutely. Um, they are starting fresh um, from the beginning. and um, But they come here with the drive to be successful. The amount of work, such as Sahal, that he has had to go through to become a dentist from Djibouti to living and studying in Cuba and then making his way here to Denver, Colorado and knowing the hard work that they have to put in and knowing that they will have to start off fresh um, is super exciting for Carolyn and I to be able to have created something to give people opportunity to relive their dreams and to be able to serve those in our community. I'm hearing a theme, which is that refugees in Project Worthmore help other refugees. Is that just a natural assumption that even refugees from very different places in the globe feel some sort of simpatico, Carolyn? I believe so. Uh, when you've experienced um, trauma and and just some hard things in life, I think you can feel more connection with others who you know have experienced that as well. And when you can give back, it's such a feeling of joy inside knowing that maybe some of the things that you've gone through are not for, for not, that, that you're helping other folks who um, are starting over. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank, Thank you, you Ryan. so much. Carolyn and Frank Anello are founders of Project Worthmore, a Denver nonprofit that supports refugees. They spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in June.
On this Thanksgiving, we're sharing stories of hope, of overcoming. That's just what Zatan Lucero Mills found a way to do after her nine-year-old son died of an asthma attack. When she couldn't find books to help her other children cope, she took matters into her own hands. She enrolled in college and designed her own bachelor's degree, Literary Empowerment for Children. And despite an accident that nearly killed her, she graduated in the spring. We spoke with her in June about her journey. Hi, Zatan. Hi. After your son Zumonte died in 2009, you wanted to find books for your children to help them grieve. Where did you look and what did you find? Well, I started at the main Denver Public Library and I pulled all the grief books off of the shelf. And I sat down on the floor and read them all. And they were developmentally inappropriate. Um, They were much fantasy and that, you know, it would be magically fixed, their grief. Um, And I just was distraught. So I sat on the floor and cried, called over a librarian who wound up crying with me um, as we realized that there really were not appropriate resources. And what kind of books do you wish had been available? Um, I wish there had been books that tell kids that their feelings are valid, that their feelings are normal. Um, (laughs) that every other people have these feelings um, and that they can communicate about them. First and foremost, they can communicate about it. And why did you turn to books to help your kids? What role does literature play in your family? Oh, my goodness. I have um, been an educator pretty much all my life. Um, In high school, I started working in schools. And so I learned quickly the power of books. Um, And that's kind of carried through my entire lifetime. Books are huge in my professional life. They're huge in my personal life. So I thought it would be a great tool. And what about for your kids? How how does literature feature into your family life? Um, So again, books are huge. When we... um, when we, when we dare to punish, taking away a book can be the hugest, most awful punishment imaginable. Mm-hmm. And even before you went back to school, you were writing about your loss, although right. not for kids. You published Mommy's Reflections, Losing Zumonte and Finding the Mustard Seed. Right. Tell me about how writing was a part of your grieving process. Um, well, after Zumonte died, I started a webpage um, in his honor. And really shortly into that, I decided that I needed my own space so that I could kind of write through my thinking and emotions. Um, And that was ultimately what became Mommy's Reflections. And that was the book that you published? That was the book that I published Thanksgiving Day 2012. And you've been an educator for some time, like you said. You've worked in different capacities from preschool to elementary school. But you enrolled in MSU to finish your bachelor's degree, and you designed this degree, Literary Empowerment for Children. What does that mean? Um, So literature quite clearly speaks to the literary element that's specifically about books. Um, When you think of being empowered, you want to gain some strength through whatever experience and um, enable people to use their voice. That's what empowerment is about. Um, Children is pretty self-explanatory as well. I'm looking at the smallest people, the youngest people in our society. So literary empowerment for children means that I 
want to take books and use them in a kind, sympathetic manner, but also a manner that will give people empowerment, strength through their stories and um, their journey. And how do you see yourself using this degree you've put together? So I see myself um, in great measure as a facilitator, um, working with children, doing reading circles to start the conversation, which will free up some time and space and energy for the people whose um, specialty is teaching children how to write or teaching them math. Um, they'll be able to continue that work interrupt, uninterrupted as I deal with the social-emotional piece. And do you see yourself also as an author? Have you written a children's story while you're in the program? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have several books that are already written, though not yet published. Um, one of my main characters is, called, is Mimi, and Mimi is a very young child um, dealing with the death of her big sister. Um, and, you know, dealing with her own thing. And the adults around her are pretty oblivious. Now, while you were a student, you had to overcome additional trauma. You right. were in a car wreck in 2017, and you were in the hospital for three months because the impact actually ruptured your heart. Right. Tell me about the recovery process and how you made it to graduation. Oh, the recovery process has been long and huge and um, is still continuing in, in some fashion. Um, I learned, had to learn how to write again, how to walk, how to talk, um, basic activities of daily living. I had to relearn all of those things. But um, when I woke up, I was aware that I was missing class, and that was very distressing. I'm like, if I'm in the hospital, I'm not in class, and this is not acceptable to me. That's one of the first things on your mind. It, it was. Um, I, ha I didn't see my husband for six weeks because we were in separate hospitals. And the first time I saw him, after we um, stopped crying, I looked at him and said, you need to enroll for school. That was on my mind. And in the end, you still completed your, your college courses in four years. I absolutely did. Yep. I uh, was determined as soon as I was released from the hospital, I re-enrolled in school and finished my degree um, a year after I would have originally, I took off a year for during the accident time period. And we've talked about the ways you want to improve children's literature, but I want to know, what are your favorite kids' books? Um, one of my favorites is Even If I Did Something Awful, and it's about a small child who um, breaks one of mommy's favorite things as she is playing in the house with a ball, which she was told not to do. But it talks about how... Um, Basically, we have to clean up our messes, but we can find a way to do that, and we still love each other. Zatan Lucero Mills speaking with me in June. She's the author of Mommy's Reflections, Losing Zamonte, and Finding the Mustard Seed. She graduated with a self-created degree in literary empowerment for children. We're in a season of spiritual significance for different faiths. And this year, despite ongoing threats of violence, Jews, Muslims, and Christians are working together in a show of solidarity and service. Several shootings and bombings in places of worship made headlines in the last year. In all, more than 300 people died in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, in mosques in New Zealand, and in churches in Sri Lanka. 
After the attack in New Zealand, Denver Rabbi Brian Field of Judaism Your Way participated in a multi-faith vigil. Another clergy, a colleague, a friend of mine, was standing next to me. And he looked to me and said, Brian, you know, we've got to stop meeting like this. After the Tree of Life shooting, Judaism Your Way increased its security at events, as did many synagogues across the country. On the one hand, having a more robust police presence makes perfect sense. On the other hand, it deeply saddened me. The militarization of our sacred gatherings felt like a deep loss. Judaism Your Way is trying something new. They will retain private security, but they're also inviting other faiths to be present at their gatherings, and they're reciprocating. As our people would come in, they would actually see, you know, people of different faith traditions welcoming them and just being another set of eyes and ears and hearts. We're not asking people to arm themselves or to come with bulletproof vests. It's more the solidarity. That's Wendy Aronson, Judaism Your Way's executive director. I think people of faith want to feel safe and secure both in that faith and in the physical location they're in. We have private security that are at our events, and so that's not a role we're asking volunteers to step into. It's really that sacred witnessing. People can speak up and say, this didn't feel right. Can you please get one of your security officers to take a look at the situation is really helpful. Muslim and Christian volunteers attended Yom Kippur last month at Judaism Your Way. They greeted people and handed out prayer books, and Aronson and Fields say that their presence helps make Jewish worshipers feel safer. Aronson volunteered at the Mosaic Foundation in Aurora's Eid al-Fitr celebration earlier this summer and helped prepare food for the Muslim community to break their fast. We set up some tables, we poured tea, we cleared dishes, just to make it easier for the Muslim community to really be present and just focus on themselves and, you know, who was there with them. I know from my experience fasting that when you break a fast, at least for me, I'm pretty just emotionally drained and exhausted. So I'm hopeful that for us to fill in those little roles, it meant that they could relax a little bit more and and just further appreciate the end of the holiday. Right now, a handful of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish communities are part of this multi-faith initiative. Field and Aronson hope that it will grow. There's more that we all have in common as people of faith than we don't have in common. And the more opportunities we have to break bread together, to share stories together, to talk about our families together, I think that's a huge part of healing the world. Rabbi Brian Field and Wendy Aronson, executive director of Judaism Your Way, we spoke in October. Colorado Matters continues after a break with a father and daughter who found a special connection on the side of a mountain. This is a Thanksgiving Day edition of Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Thanksgiving is not just about giving thanks, it's also about family. And the Glenwood Springs family has a unique connection. Salah Snyder's parents met and fell in love on a climbing trip to El Capitan and Yosemite National Park. The 10-year-old grew up hearing stories about that trip, and this summer, she made the climb herself. 
with her dad, Mike Schneider, and a family friend, Mark Regeer. Sayla is now the youngest known person to scale El Cap's 3,000-foot vertical cliff face. I spoke with Sayla and her dad in July. How has this experience affected your father-daughter relationship? It was a pretty special time to spend together. I mean, it was one of the best weeks of my life, I think, having this time uh, with Sayla climbing and yeah, I think it brought us really close together. Yeah. And whose idea was it to climb El Capitan? It's something that Sela has talked about for a long time because El Cap is such an important part of our family story. I mean, that's where my wife and I fell in love, and so it's a place we've traveled to. And so I think it's something that Sela really got interested in because she'd seen the pictures and heard the stories. And so it was a real special time, kind of coming full circle in a way in life. And... um well, I think before my dad, I kind of talked about it, I and I was just kind of thinking, maybe I could do it, maybe someday. You know, I never actually, um, it wasn't until about a year ago that I thought that I would actually do it, like this year. And tell me about those conversations. How did it go from just an idea of something that you'd do someday to something that you're really actively training to do? Yeah, it. I don't know. It's hard to answer because... It's something we had talked about for a long time, but it's one of those things where it's such a big goal and such a big dream. You just don't know when it's actually going to happen. Of course, inside of me, it was a desire, but I thought it would take many, many more years. Um, but Sayla really was adamant about, you know, she wanted to try it. And so we kind of set a series of goals of, of steps that she had to go through to see if she was ready to tackle something as big as El Cap. And she kept meeting all those goals and working really hard and training really hard. And so that's why finally I was like, okay, I think we're going to give it a go. And I, I don't know that we even knew for sure if we were going to give it a go until this last month, um, just because we really wanted to make sure that she was ready physically and mentally and having all the technical skills that she would need. And even going into Yosemite, we pulled in and she kind of had this big wide-eyed look looking at El Cap. And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe this is too big. Maybe she's not going to want to go up there. But she was just gung-ho, like, let's go, let's go up there. And, uh, but even along the way, I just wasn't sure those first couple of days whether we'd actually make it or if we'd just go down. Sayla, tell me about those goals. How did you prepare for this? Um, so I think a lot of it is mental, just thinking about, you know, do I actually want to do this? Am I actually ready for this? Um, things like that. Um, physically, I needed to really work on my strengths. I also needed to work on a lot of the technical skills. And, and where did you train for that? Do you want to tell her where you trained for that? Um, I trained for that a lot in my garage. Um, so we would um, just set up ropes in our garage and I could practice um, some of the skills. Then we would also go out to like Rifle, um, Unaweep Canyon, um, a bunch of places, climbing destinations out on the western slope of Colorado. Let's talk about the beginning of the climb. Sayla, you led the first segment or the first pitch. What was that like? I think it was just really crazy. Just the thought of, wow, am I actually here? Um, yeah, it was really crazy, just the thought that I was there. You know, I'm in Yosemite. I'm at the base of El Cap. And you guys are in it for the long haul. You made it to the top in five days. Walk me through what those days were like. Basically, you know, every day you wake up in the morning, uh, eat some 
breakfast, go to the bathroom, pack up your camp, get ready to climb for the next day. And, and so then basically once you start climbing, you, you just start climbing uh, all day. Uh, we did take some long lunch breaks because we had the party in front of us, so we, we didn't have to really rush. I'd say snack breaks. We never Snack breaks. Lunch. I guess we're not having like a full deli lunch up there, are we? But we, we are eating some good snacks and drinking water and relaxing on ledges while we're up there. Uh, but, I mean, that's basically what you're doing. You know, you're probably climbing for 8 to 12 hours a day and then trying to get to where you want to camp but before dark. And by camp, you know, like El Cap is pretty steep and sheer, but there's definitely some ledges along the way that make camping a little bit easier. Uh, we have a portal ledge, which is like a portable cot that hangs from the side of the cliff that we can sleep on. Um, and then we have to haul our gear as we climb. So someone will climb up a pitch and lead it. And then they start hauling gear while uh, the second person starts cleaning it. And that was usually Sela. And what does cleaning a route mean? A cleaning a route is, so my dad, he would lead up, put up the rope, and um, then I was usually the second person to jug up, and by jugging, I'm um, just pulling myself up a rope with something called ascenders, um, and they can go up the rope, but not down, and um, when I clean, so I'm taking those pieces of gear that he's put in, and um, they're still clipped into the rope, so I have to take the, unclip them from my rope and take them out. Uh, so you have to carry all your food and water up there, your sleeping bags, any extra clothes. Um, we had a little stove. And so, you know, your day really gets consumed by packing up, climbing, and then unpacking and camping and, uh, and eating. So it, it's kind of like vertical backpacking. And I want to know more about camping on a sheer rock face. Sayla, tell me more about what that was like. To be honest, I really like uh, sleeping up there. Um, I love the sunsets. It really, some of them reminded me of rainbows because they were all the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> um, some of them reminded me of cotton candy because they were the exact colors of, of like the blue and the pink of cotton candy. And I think because the ledges, you know, they're not 50, they're not 100 feet long, you know. They're pretty small, um, and so you're always really close to people, and I think that can really help bond your relationship. It is kind of neat because you cook together and do all these things together, so you really become a tight-knit group, you know, because you do have to kind of work together with things. Everything's always clipped in when you're up there, you know, like you think about, um, you know, everything, your sleeping bag, your your stove is clipped into the wall, like your water bottles have little hooks on them so you can clip them into the wall. Um, everything's clipped in when you're camping up there. Um, uh, yeah. And that's including yourself. You're completely tied in the whole time. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And, and that includes even when we're sleeping because a really common question we get is, well, what happens if you roll in the middle of the night and roll out of bed and so you're still tied in the entire time, even that's, when you're sleeping. That's the one thing I don't like about sleeping on a portal edge. Um, I'm wiggly when I sleep. Um, <laughs> so not and, enough rolling over on the side of the mountain. And so when I wake up in the night or in the morning, I'll usually be wrapped up in rope. <laughs> 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 now, I want to talk about getting to the top in a minute, but Sayla, are there any moments on the wall that you're really proud of? I think when we got past um, the cane swing and the boot flake, 
um, I think that was really special for me because um, now I knew that, you know, we're, it's going to be harder to get down than it is up now. Mm, is and, that the halfway um, point? Yeah. Was there ever a moment when you didn't think you'd make it to the top? Well, I don't actually, no, not really. I think that mostly it was just, it wasn't a 100% chance that we would get to the top. So I was worried that something would happen, you know, maybe someone's going to fall and get hurt or um, maybe we drop something. Um, just that can worry me a lot, um, the thought that we might not get to the top. Um, yeah. our, our big motto all throughout the climb was how do you eat an elephant? Small bites. <laughs> and we talked about that a lot, especially because at the beginning we were behind a, a slower group. And so it caused us to change our game plan a little bit because we, we were planning on four days. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, I think we're going to have to take five days if we do this. So do we have enough food, enough water, and do we have enough grit and perseverance to do five days? Because it's a lot of work being up there. And um, so we just try to take every day one step at a time, one pitch at a time. Um, and even just individual moves, you know, just focusing on the little things uh, to get to the top of a big goal. Um, and so I know early on, I think we had more doubts because it's a lot harder at the bottom because you have a lot of weight that you're hauling up the, the wall, a lot of water and a lot of food. And, and, you know, water weighs a lot. We probably started out with about, I think we had about 12 gallons of water at the start. So it's about 100 pounds. And so that's a lot of weight to carry. So I think we had some doubts early on, um, but we really just tried to have a good positive attitude about it and take it one step at a time. And as the days went on, like Sayla said, once we got past the boot flake and the king swing, we're like, okay, like, I think we're, we're, we're doing pretty good here. Let's just keep make, making sure that we're doing things right and we don't make a mistake or have, have an accident happen or keep an eye on the weather that there's not a big storm coming in. And obviously climbing is so much a part of both who you are and who and your family's life. But it's also full of risks that you've both alluded to. Were there parts of the climb that made you nervous as a father? I'm a climbing guide, and I've been climbing and instructing and teaching climbing for a long time. So I'm always really aware of the risk of what we do. I don't know that there was any particular moment where I was particularly worried. Sayla really showed herself to be really adept at the skills that she needed. And I know... For myself, when I was leading, or my friend Mark, when he was leading, and we were putting up the rope, uh, we were always very conscious of the dangers, the risks. And, and that could be things like sharp rock. You don't want your rope to get abraded over sharp rock. So we really were keeping an eye on things like that. We were really just keeping an eye on her as well as ourselves, that we were having good backups, that we were doing things right. Um, and that's just something that I think has happened for me, like become a real habit after a long time of climbing and a long time of guiding and teaching climbing. So th there was never a moment where I, I think I felt like she was at any particular risk. It was just kind of more overall, just a general mindset that we had. Now, Sayla, I want you to tell me about that moment when you made it to the very top of this 3,000 foot climb. What were you feeling? Pizza, ice cream, river. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was really emotional. I was just thinking about, did I just do this? Um, it was kind of am amazing for me that I had actually done it. 
I never, I never thought that day would come. <laughs> Mike, you've climbed El Cap a few times before. Did climbing it with your daughter make you see it any differently? I really, I tried to keep my emotions in check. I was like, oh, I just don't want to, I don't want to consider it guaranteed that we're going to get to the top until we're actually at the top. And when that finally happened and I saw her like crying happy tears, which she said she had never had a happy cry before, um, that was pretty special. And it really made me, you know, just think back to all these things in my life that had brought me to this point of, you know, meeting my wife and having kids and dreaming about climbing El Cap someday with my kids and to have it come to fruition was pretty powerful. And and I don't even know that it's really set in yet. And Sayla, now that it's been a couple of weeks, do you feel like you processed it yet? No. I think for the most part I have, but I don't think I'll ever really be able to fully process it. I, I think sometimes something so big like this it's going to take a long time to really understand. And it's almost, I feel like we need to go climb something else and maybe even fail on something else. And then, and then maybe we'll realize how special it was. I think we're all just kind of coming to terms with climbing El Cap. And that's how I felt with every time I've climbed El Cap. It's always such a big experience and it's so hard to wrap your head around. Um, And so, yeah, I still, I think I'm still figuring it out. (laughs) Thank you both for talking to me. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate it. Sayla Schneider climbed El Capitan with her father, Mike Schneider. Sayla was 10 at the time and the youngest known person to have climbed El Cap. The Schneiders live in Glenwood Springs. We spoke in July. When we come back on this Thanksgiving, celebrating community, culture, and heroes through the youngest of voices. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you. Now a Thanksgiving story about community, about unifying voices, saluting neighborhood heroes and heritage. Here's my colleague Ryan Warner with a little help. The Voice of Mombello Podcast. For the next little while, we're going to share the airwaves with students at McGlone Academy in Denver, some of them as young as nine. As you heard, they have a podcast called The Voice of Montbello, named for the neighborhood where most of them live, and where poverty, immigration, and race relations are part of kids' daily realities. Their teacher, Paul Clifton, says the neighborhood is also full of heroes. He started the podcast in 2017. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, your students have interviewed Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, the rapper Brother Ali. They've also made more personal episodes, like interviewing parents about their immigration stories. My mother said that she came to the United States of America so I could have a better life and that I had to leave my family in El Salvador. I came here so I could be safe because in El Salvador they were killing people. I crossed the border with people that I did not know. When I first came to the United States, I feel horrible because people treat me different because I did not know and speak English. Does that just get to the heart of why you put together this podcast? Oh, definitely. I mean, sharing stories is so important to help build empathy in our community. A lot of uh, the students that we have at McGlone, you know, they're first-generation Americans or they're immigrants themselves. And 
through creating the podcast at the school, we're teaching kids, helping kids um, use social media to share their story in a positive way. Nearly a quarter of Montbello families live in poverty. That's more than twice the average metro-wide. As someone who works in Montbello, spends time with these families, what do you see that we can't from statistics like that about poverty? Wow, <laughs> that's a huge question. I would say that a lot of times, even working in education, we're, we use a lot of numbers, right? And a lot of times students that are free and reduced lunch we count, you know, test scores, students that are proficient in different in different areas. So a lot of times when, you know, you regard people and students as, as just numbers and people that are in poverty, then you disregard their story and the amount of value that they bring to the table. And I feel like through this podcast, we were able to highlight those stories that make Montbello special. And the students that are producing the podcast, writing the podcast, they're able to show their brilliance. Um, they're even this helping create background music. Yeah. So my first year of teaching, we had a studio um, in the school. My passion is recording music. And um, I brought in my studio equipment and students started making beats. And so every year, that's an aspect of my classroom is having a production studio in there. I wonder if you felt like you had a voice in your neighborhood growing up. I mean, I, I grew up in Utah, in Ogden, Utah. And, you know, as a black male who's mixed, there weren't many other black males in Utah. I mean, it, it doesn't really exist. I grew up Mormon. And, and a lot of times in church and things like that, we would learn about pioneers and we would learn about Europeans who came to America and did amazing things and colonized America. But I really didn't have my, my story wasn't told and I didn't have a lot of um, peers or adults that could really teach those lessons to me about who I am, you know, where I come from. And like as an adult, being able to find out more about my identity through education and through music and through media really influenced me to become a media arts teacher and provide those opportunities to students, you know, like you said, at the age of nine and up. You have a regular segment called Heroes of Montbello. One of those heroes is a police officer named Elisa Garcia, and the kids shared their impressions after her visit. It was an honor for Officer Garcia to come in and tell her hero's journey. I never knew that it took five years for Officer Garcia to become a police officer. I was inspired to learn that becoming a police officer takes a lot of work. you got to believe in yourself to achieve your goals. Now that I know education is really important, I will pay more attention in classes so I can achieve my goal for be, of being a teacher. Also, I never knew that Officer Garcia was in a gang and did drugs. I was inspired to learn that every, everyone has made a mistake in life, but mistakes help you grow. My goodness, uh, the, the background of that officer who had been incarcerated. Right. I mean, Officer Garcia is a great example of the, you know, the heroes that exist in Montbello. There are so many folks that grew up in Montbello and have gone on to do amazing things. And there's a lot of people that have gone through some tough times in their lives and, and have rebounded and are the parents of, our, of the students at our school at Magalone. And those stories are like so important to share because none of the students knew any of that about, about Romy's mom. And oh, then, so that she's a student's mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, Heroes of Montbello is kind of like a way for um, 
kids to bring in their parents oh. and interview them as heroes. And they may be, these parents, helping police the neighborhood in this case. Exactly. It's so important that we help students frame the narrative of what's taught about our community. Like in Montbello, a lot of people call Montbello Montghetto. And hmm. so students through the podcast are able to kind of rewrite the narrative and share that, man, there are heroes that live in Montbello. And so, you know, we need to speak about Montbello in a more positive light. You often begin an episode with students' reflections of what they learned from the particular interview or story. And in one episode about the 1969 West High School walkouts, 11-year-old Juliana Soto said something pretty poignant about her hopes for the podcast. We are doing this podcast episode in order to show Chicano pride and let America know that they are making a mistake when they discriminated against us and to tell them how we felt when they treated us like that. So as today, we are going to convince people to have empathy. What did you think when you heard that? Man, I, I was really excited. I, I mean, initially, um, the students interviewed my father to gain empathy with the African-American experience. I'm an ELS teacher and I teach in Spanish. And so my first year of teaching, um, all of my students were Latino and I'm their African-American teacher. And there were some issues that came up in the school when it came to, you know, racism and, and students, you know, saying mean things to each other between Latinos and African-Americans. You felt a kind of segregation. Yeah, there was definitely a segregation for sure, um, based on the way the classes are set up. Like they were all Latino in my in my class. And some things were said and we had a community circle and, and we talked about the instances of racism and, and what racism is. And one thing that was surfaced was that a lot of my students weren't allowed to play with black kids. And, you know, at first I was really shocked and I was upset. This was something their families, their parents would have told them. Right. Yeah. It's something that someone in the community must have shared with them that it wasn't okay to play with black kids. And so that first episode, they interviewed my father who lived through segregation, picked cotton, worked in fields and overcame a lot of obstacles to then, you know, go to college and when he was 50 years old and, and get, a, get a degree. He went to college at 50. Yeah, he, he graduated at 50 years old and um, he's a hero of mine, right? So it was important for them to see, um, have an experience of interviewing one of my heroes and know, hear about that African-American experience to then also find how it's similar. There's intersectionality between the experience of an immigrant and someone who lived through segregation. Well, here's a taste. What were the conditions like in your school? I went to a segregated school, and it was for blacks only. At that time, I would walk by a a school for white kids and go on about a mile and a half to the school that was set up for the black, us black kids. What has most surprised you about making this podcast with the kids? The most surprising thing is that the podcast is, has grown. Most of the time in schools, you will do a quick activity, a quick project, and it'll be something cute to share with your parents and, and the students. But this is something that is, has gotten big. You know, we have listeners all over the country. We're now we're looking to expand. We're starting an artist in residency program. All of these opportunities are coming through because the students are using their voice and they want to do more. So who's a dream interview? Ooh, a dream. Well, one interview that students have wanted for a long time is Michelle Obama. Okay. I feel like that would be 
the interview of all interviews. We've put it out there. Yeah. Michelle, if you're listening, let's make it happen. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. My colleague Ryan Warner speaking with Paul Clifton, who teaches at McGlone Academy in Denver. Clifton's students interview their neighbors and reflect on community heroes overcoming social issues through their podcast, The Voice of Montbello. Finally today, Denver soul man Nathaniel Rateliff recently announced a new solo album is in the works, and with it, a return to his early acoustic days. Before hitting it big in 2015 with his band The Night Sweats, the singer-songwriter was known around town for his more stripped-down music. He'll be taking that sound on the road for a string of shows across the country in spring 2020. Before then, Rateliff will be joined by Mavis Staples for his annual holiday shows coming up December 13th and 14th at Mission Ballroom in Denver. So on this Thanksgiving, we'll go out with a song of gratitude from Nathaniel Rateliff recorded in the CPR Performance Studio with the Night Sweats. Here's Thank You. Spin your years Spin your time All these tears Thank you. I just wanna 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 thank you. Pretty baby, for getting me I just want to thank you for joining us today for this special Thanksgiving edition of Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.